You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni. Usually I say in Yerushalayim, I'd like to say that because I just like mentioning Yerushalayim, but actually Sam is uh, joining us from this part of the world across the Atlantic. He's now uh, ensconced somewhere in New Jersey. I don't know if I want to reveal exactly where you are. <laughs> They'll come after me. Okay. Yeah. But you're here in New Jersey, although we're obviously not exactly uh, together, but closer than we usually are. Sam, in the couple of months since we've spoken last, a lot of things have happened in the United States over here. It, it's hard to pick one that's a, a standout issue, but uh, something that I think is still lingering because of uh, the legislation that was just passed, because of a Supreme Court ruling, was uh, dealing with uh, eliminating guns, eliminating uh, assault rifles from individuals. And it, it's still very uh, burning in people's minds, the events of the uh, shooting in Uvalde, Texas by Salvador Ramos. And obviously that was uh, connected with the uh, shooting that occurred about, uh, about a week earlier in Buffalo. Uh, both of those shootings together have generated a real desire by, uh, I guess, the populace in general to see some change. But uh, there hasn't been as much attention given to the causes of what brings people to become mass shooters. I actually, Sam, in your absence last week, went back to one of our programs that we did in December after a shooting, and I dropped it again. And it's interesting that our listeners listen to it again, because I think that some of the truths and ideas that you laid out there are still relevant. You can't get enough of Jimmy. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, again, obviously, we can have a whole show, I think, Sam, about people that are glued to hearing the next violent event. And that's what the news cycle is about, is about another dead body. And somehow, I don't know exactly what part of the brain that touches. But actually, I want to push about something that was a blip when it occurred, because nobody wanted to use this issue as any sort of justification for the horror that Ramos unleashed. And that was his past, not his, the past that was violent and bordered on criminal, but the past of, as a as child, how he was bullied, specifically because of a speech impediment, a stuttering problem that he had. And That seemed to be, from all reports, something that was the first indicator uh, of what was happening with him, that he was, how he hated school, how he hated being in school, he hated being a student. Again, I'm not going into his mind why he picked this school and why he picked little children. You, You can play armchair psychologist on this, but clearly he was a person who had a troubled youth. And part of the troubled aspect of his youth was his inability to be able to put sentences together without stuttering over them. And I was thinking about this, Sam, when I was saying, you know, I got to talk to you about this because another issue that has become paramount, it's been hushed up by the left media, but the right media is talking about it endlessly. Joe Biden's mental capacity, Joe Biden seemingly not able to construct sentences that make sense and put things together correctly and not answering the question the way he should, finding himself, correcting himself in mid-sentence. And then I was drawn to an article that was written, Sam, about two years ago by a a reporter of the Atlantic magazine, John Hendrickson, who himself was a stutterer. And he knew about Biden being a stutterer, that Biden, the president of the United States, arguably the most powerful person in the world, uh, throughout his elementary school and high school, and even the beginning of his college days, he was also, in a way, taunted and given nicknames, Dash, they called him, because he always had to stop. And Hendrickson was given access to Biden, the candidate. And it was clear, the way Hendrickson reports it, that Biden is still dealing with those demons of his past, the demons of fear that he remembers any time he had to speak publicly. And even uh, Hendrickson was noting it, that even in his private interviews, when Biden went back there, all of a sudden, he wasn't able to say those words. 
the S's, the T's, things started not coming out properly the way they should. So look, this whole thing that I'm trying to build there is, is that I know from Sam, and, and of course, this is your area, but as a teacher for so many years, I've had stu- students that have been stutterers, and I've had parents come to me and talk to me about their frustration uh, in this area. And it's one thing when you're bullied by other students. It's another thing when your parents are convinced that this is something that we've got to work on. And the parents put incredible pressure on their children that, hey, why are you stuttering? Come on, we know you can do it. We know you can stop. And the kid fails terribly. And the parent you know, has a hard time being supportive. So Sam, again, as you say, I've laid a big table here. Talk to us really about this. I, I, I can't say it's the central issue of our times, but it's something that there's a juca in my head. I, I'd like it to at least give us a psychological understanding of, of this phenomenon. Let me just say it is a central issue in quite a few of our lives, especially those who have teach this fluency, but even if not, they have similar disorders. Not when I say similar, I mean within a certain theoretical framework, and I'd like to unpack that. So let me just go into several areas that you touched, and then we'll narrow it down. Um, first of all, the simple one to deal with is parents who apply pressure to children who have a certain inadequacy insofar as the parents are concerned. And just to say that despite the... Um, avowed noble intentions in parents, that's often due to parents trying to save their own face. In other words, somehow they feel children have something that they consider imperfect that reflects on their own imperfection. And that's a nasty thing to say, but I can afford to say it because I see it all the time. In other words, you're concerned for the child, but you're also concerned about yourself you're concerned about yourself, first of all, because it makes you and your family less that postcard perfect. And second of all, because you somehow feel this is your fault and therefore you blame yourself. And when you blame yourself, that's an uncomfortable feeling. So it's much easier just to blame the victim. That's, that's a common way of dealing with difficulties. So that's point A. Point B, just a technical point. Um, when you speak about this fluency, the two major types of disfluency are of verbal disfluency is a stammer and a stutter. Just to clarify that to some of our listeners who may not know the difference, stutters occur in the middle of words. In other words, as you're saying a word, you start tripping up on a certain consonant and keep repeating it and can't get beyond there. Stammer is usually before a word and more typical before a sentence. So you kind of try to start, and that's where the eh, 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 or m, 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 m comes. You just can't get to it. And um, there are, in psychodynamics, there are actually different interpretations of where those come from. And you can probably guess that we're dealing here with sexuality and aggression, and maybe we'll get to that. <laughs> I would not have it's guessed. part it. of my religion, and anybody who chuckles at that of points not chuckling. I'm just saying, I'm not sure how I would have guessed. Right, right. Okay, it's a hard guess. I mean, especially knowing me, it's a hard guess. Okay, now, the third thing I wanted to point out is you use the word demon, like dealing with these demons, and you use the tongue-in-cheek. It's not tongue-in-cheek, so let me get involved with that. We have a fairly advanced understanding of how nature works and how people's minds work and how people's brains work compared to people of X thousands of years ago. When people looked for explanations for stuff they couldn't understand, they would always appeal to certain constructs and often invent certain constructs. So one common construct around was a demon. In other words, something that doesn't make sense you were doing something, you have motivations, it's clear what you want, and start acting in a way that's antithetical to what you want and to what is, quote, unquote, the logical or the right thing to do. So obviously, we start blaming something. So demons are very common. I would say, um, let's, okay, let's think about witchcraft, even in Salem, okay? Witches in Salem were burnt. Witches were burnt all over Europe. Why did we burn them? Because we, I'm saying, no, it wasn't really me, we, but I'm saying, why did 
the organized um, society burned them because the assumption was that something nefarious must be going on to make somebody behave in such a Meshuggah way. So therefore, the assumption is, again, blame the victim and say, okay, something happened over here. This person is possessed. And then you say, whoa, wait a moment. Maybe I'm next. I don't want to be next, right? So the answer is this person is possessed because she, it was usually she, made a deal with the devil. And for that, she deserves punishment. And she's very much different than me because I would never do that because I'm a God-fearing Christian or whatever I am. I would never consult with devil this way. And this goes back to the age-old ideas if you go to the legends associated with the biblical account of Eve. Right now, you have God who says, don't eat that apple. What's with you? You can eat the berries and the pomegranates and papayas and who knows what you have there, dragon fruits. You can't stop yourself from eating an apple. It must be. It must be this evil snake who's around there who persuaded her and she made the deal and therefore she's to be condemned and she's forever going to have pain walking. Well, she's going to do all kinds of bad stuff. And of course, the demon gets it too. That's a good way of making sense of stuff that makes no sense to us. And we still do it. And especially as kids, we do it all the time. So this makes a lot of sense from, shall we say, a historical cultural point of view. What are the leftovers? As we become scientifically advanced and we've realized that there are all kinds of psychiatric illnesses that are due to brain dysfunctions, et cetera, et cetera, lay people have still lagged behind in certain areas. And those areas are what used to be called psychosomatic medicine. It's basically areas where there isn't an understanding of the cause and effect connection between the disorder and what may have caused it. Okay, so it's clear if somebody suffers, let's say, a tremendous fright or a trauma or let's say an injury, we can understand they cannot walk well, they cannot talk well, they get afraid, they cry. Okay, but when he sees somebody who's a regular kid, you know, grows up in school, has, you know, the bicycle and the scooter and the TV, and all of a sudden gets depressed and starts getting suicidal, okay? We don't, we, the the people who are not professionally trained don't understand that. So then we're back to square one in Salem. And now here's someone who's acting the way you have everything and you're crying. What are you doing? You're not going to school. You're not going to have fun with the other kids. You're not getting married. You're not getting a job. There's something with you. Now, we don't quite go to demons these days, not usually as an explanation. So we go psychological. You know, you can get that. You know, we get all kinds of pop psychology books in the drugstore and you can get the shows on TV late at night that explain it. So we know what it is. You're just not willing. You don't have any motivation. Get a hold of yourself. What is wrong with you? And I would say it's very common, not so much for schizophrenia, but it's very common for the disorders, more than what we used to call the neurotic disorders or problems and living disorders like depression and anxiety. Very common for people who suffer anxiety or depression to be bombarded and attacked by well-meaning family members saying, get a hold of yourself, just stop it. It makes no sense. You're anxious about what? You've been an A student all along and here's exam number 500 in your life and you're getting anxious and then you froze of all things. And what is wrong with you is a great comment that's around all over. My grandfather told me he has a horrible teacher. And I said, what does she say? She says, what's wrong with you? Okay, that's enough. But so but that's a very common thing that we do. And um, it reminds me of Salem. It reminds me of Eve and the snake. Oh, okay, look, I'm appreciative, especially after I unloaded the Matterhorn on you, that you came back with your own Great Valley of Dura, but I appreciate the reference. And obviously, you're correct that we bring to the table our prejudices, our religious sensibilities, the fictitious ideas that were common in different times, and it's very hard to shake them. All of that is granted. I think one thing that you implied, which I want to just say, is that unlike a situation that we've talked about here on this program, uh, of, let's say, a obviously a congenital issue that couldn't have been changed, a situation where, um, whether it was Downs, whether it was, as you said, 
the outcome of an accident. Or deafness, blindness. Right. Those things are understood. Those things, the children, although, again, they're suffering, I'm not trying to gauge it, the uh, appending parents and teachers and friends are generally kind. Again, I think we've come to a situation where uh, we understand it and we don't mistreat those children and mistreat those adults. Let me, I just have to throw in one of my jabs that sits on my throat the whole time, and that is we do over-attribute various kinds of issues to this diagnosable problem and therefore deny the humanity of some of these people. For instance, in my mind, a blind person is stupid. <laughs> and, and it's bizarre, you know, because I'm fairly sophisticated at the conscious level, but unconscious, I have to stop myself of kind of trying, look, raise your voice to a blind person to explain something. Like, what are you doing? They keep telling you, I'm not deaf. Because in my mind, this is a deficient human being. So I'm sorry, that was just my... No, 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 you're right. There's certain things, even a, a sophisticated psychologist like yourself, and, and any people, they find themselves, or you see this also, Shmuel, older people. You find younger people talking slow and screaming to older people who also aren't deaf, assuming that, well, I see how old you are. You obviously, you must be mentally impaired. But I think on what we were talking about before, the needling, the uh, pushing, the statements like your grandchild said, what's wrong with you? Those statements are usually not unpacked for children that, oh, you know, it's, it's clear that this child, you can't speak about that way because that's something they can't help. But the assumption is, and this is what you were getting at, was that stammering and stuttering was something that the person who's doing it can get over. Furthermore, especially if you want to put on the pseudo-psychologist hat, not only can they get over it, but they're doing it to themselves. It's not something that happened that they can get over with the proper uh, orientation. Just stop this. Why are you doing this? It's willful, quote-unquote. So let's go to something you mentioned before, which I didn't want to get into, but there are people who try to wean themselves off of anti-anxiety medication. And you see many times very well-meaning rabbis, professionals, therapists, I'm going to teach you about deep breathing. I'm going to teach you deep breathing techniques. I have a whole keg of tar and a whole bag of feathers waiting for these people. But you know that, right? Well, I'm very well aware that some of them are close relatives of mine who preach that. Right, right. And, and there is something which is a pseudoscience that people make a lot of money out of, which is called biofeedback therapy. There's another one also, tshuva. <laughs> Get rid of your sins because it's clear that your sins are causing this because nothing else would be caused. Why else would you be depressed, anxious, or stuttering? There must be something that you're messing around with your soul. So stop doing that and you will be fine. Okay, so let me just put this on the table. My good friends who have spoken to me about this and have said that they don't need to take Xanax anymore because they've learned how to calm themselves and they've learned how to to do these breathing techniques. And also, by the way, you can get rid of the eyeglasses and prosthetics as well. Okay. But but I think there's an element of truth here. I don't think it's all snake oil. I think part of it, Sam, talks to the elasticity and power of the human mind, the brain, and the will. There are people who can will themselves, like Biden spoke about in that article when he spoke about his past. He used tremendous force of will to be able to stand up in class and be able to get through. There are intellectual or at least determinative methods that people can use to, if not conquer it, but can at least keep it at bay. Well, that, but that's the key. Just for, I'm sorry, this is my bully pulpit. Keep it at bay is the word. So basically, if you have indigestion and you have fits of incontinence, you can keep it at bay. Don't take any medication because you can just be anxious to the point that you can hardly think, but you will not need to take that pill. It's worth it, isn't it? Well, obviously, Sam, you're preaching to the converted here. Okay, and I'm, pre- I'm preaching to some of our listeners. 
They can go, but why not? It's so much easier just to be on edge 24-7 than to take a little pill. That's much easier. Easier for whom? Right. Well, again, I think part of it is that the idea of being dependent on a pharmacological product. And I can tell you, as someone who takes medication for other reasons, if I'm out of my meds, and I think you'll, I think you share this, uh oh, I don't have my meds. They, they haven't been filled yet. <laughs> that can generate a lot of anxiety. I right? feel the same way when my fridge is empty. I wish I could go <laughs> right. off food and off sleep and off relationships with people. Come on, think of it. When I don't have people or food or sleep, I go nuts. So I think it's time to wean ourselves off it slowly. You know, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry. I can't resist. No, no, I, I agree. I'm just telling you that it isn't all necessarily a primitive belief in you know legends. Some of it is really the belief in the power of the mind. Again, we all applaud stories of great willpower, of people who were able to not knuckle under under torture, John McCain and others, right, who stayed in prison and were able to resisted torture and they didn't give up the secrets no question and i I especially feel that way because they had no other options they have had the option of simply opening the prison door with that key and leaving i wouldn't give them much credit for saying i didn't open the prison door i stayed there and i got massacred but ha no key sam even our sports heroes and i know you're not that much into sports but whenever there's a in-depth deep dive into what their lives are. They speak about their ability to get into a zone, to focus so totally and completely that even though physically they are pretty much similar to others, but the ones that stand out are the ones that are able to somehow have that mental ability to, again, whether it's Michael Jordan or anyone else. Or the classic literature. Right, all the heroes. Prevailing, sure, prevailing. Right, you're talking about Dumas in his um, account of Monte Cristo and other things. That has constantly been abandoned as something that the great potential that human beings can do. So so I, I think that's part of what's behind it. But what I wanted to ask you about to really expand on something that you hinted at before. All right, we know that the parents you've mentioned Part of it is their own shame. Part of it is uh, humanities in general who aren't scientists, their inability to really deal with when they see things that they believe can be, come on, you can snap out of it. What's wrong with you? But what's going on? What, why do you think a child, like you mentioned before, who hasn't been through trauma, maybe like who's had a pretty decent upbringing? Well, you'll tell me if it's decent or not. Why is it that they develop the stammer or the stutter? What's really behind it? Okay, I will get to that. There are two approaches that I want to do. I just want to stress, I mean, this is something that I mentioned before. I just want to put the nail in its coffin. And that's just the entire rationale of sin and guilt, which, by the way, exists in atheists all the same. It's a personal adequacy. So just let me get that out of the way. Fine. Okay. So two basic approaches. The standard psychodynamic approach is symbolism. In other words, Let's look at it factually. And the, the psychoanalytic approach generally is when you have a problem, you say the problem is really an attempted solution by the patient that's gone awry. All right. So now it's, for instance, you have something that the patient is doing and then you say, well, it's not a problem. The, problem, the, the patient is trying to solve something, but by doing this, they're making a mess. The classic, let's say, oversimplified case, enuresis, which means involuntary bedwetting of a kid. So the parents will come in and say, my kid's bedwetting. I say, so what's the problem? So the problem is, first of all, he feels terrible. The place stinks. He has to hide stuff every night. And then he can't go to school and people make fun of him. So the twist is to say, well, maybe that's really what's causing it. Because he wants to feel bad about himself because he feels guilty. He wants not to go to school. He wants to avoid being with other kids. And then we say, okay, why would he not want to go to school? Why would he want to feel guilty? Why would he want to avoid other kids? And once we solve that, allegedly, then the kid stops bedwetting. So that's, one, that's the psychological approach, which I have to say has 
been getting less support in the psychiatric community. It's not that recognized, but that used to be the only solution, um, let's say 120 years ago, the only solution now. The real thing that's going on here is that it's actually a brain defect. There is something going on in layman's language, it's called short-circuiting. It's like you want to do something and all of a sudden there's too much um, messaging going on across the neurons. It gets flooded and you have a, real, a relapse. Relapse, I'm using a technical term. In other words, the electrochemical message cannot go through to the a- affecting the nerves. Okay, so that's similar to what we know in Parkinson's. It, it is the exact same thing and it's technically treatable in Parkinson's. Now we have a fairly decent measure of doing implants and just changing the frequency of what goes on and people self-administer, it's working out nicely. People have not done it for stammering and stuttering yet, but my guess is that as they come up with non-invasive ways of being able to direct um, um, inhibiting electrical messages, that'll happen there as well. There's no question that's what's going on. And the more insightful, introspective experimental subjects report the same thing. There's just too much flooding. I wish I I could stop the messaging coming through. And and when you look at it, it looks like that. Like the person opens their mouth and then, ah, it's like too much electricity coming in. There's no question that's the model. They haven't refined it yet, but that's the truth of what's happening. So if that's the truth, Sam, you're an empirical person, a statistical person, a medical person in a way. Shouldn't brain scans of stammerers and stutterers indicate some sort of difference in their brain scan than someone who doesn't have that issue. Okay, so what you say, brain scans, brain scans are constantly being researched and updated. So sure, there's no question it's going to happen. If I have to put my uh, my professional guessing uh, abilities online, I'd give it less than 15 years. So you're saying even though today, and just to explicate this a little bit, today, someone who is suffering from dementia, Parkinson's, they are able to see the plaque in the white area. But that's a, that's a very, plaque is very general. You know, there's plaque in people and they don't have the problem. So that, that's not definitive enough, but there's no question I'm talking more about mapping electrical stimulation. Okay. That's what the answer is. Not so much the gross, shall we say, anatomy of a brain that has um, actual um, defects in it. We're talking more about wiring, so to speak. They do have ablation. Ablation is around today already for certain areas. So another thing that should, again, just talking out of my office chair, it should be indicative in a genetic way as well. No question. Although what you'll find is that the pathways are genetically passed on, but not necessarily the effects because not always do certain kinds of physical structures result in observable behavioral uh, ramifications. But sure, there's no question about this. Nobody, nobody doubts it. And yet, yet the um, boogaboos, you know, the, 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 the so-called attributed demons, they're there. I, I, let me just back up. I need to tell you a joke. Okay, I'm sorry. I need to tell you a joke. And that joke is fairly indicative of the, the traditional, you know, bias that I, I said in the beginning. It's just, it's just a cute joke. And I heard this from someone who uh, basically, I would say, would be considered a scholar. I mean, it, this was years ago. We're going back a number of years ago as I was a kid. And someone who was a genuine, nice guy who used to help people, help people a lot. So, so here's the story. The story is that you have this... Um, rich, whatever he is in the town. And he has a daughter, an only daughter that he wants to marry off. And he says he appreciates the rabbis. He appreciates scholars. He wants to have a new son-in-law that's brilliant, capable, analytic, understands everything, good-looking. He wants the best. And and those are very hard to find, especially in the shtetl of six and a half people. And then this shatran comes and he says he found someone from a neighboring town. He has everything. He's analytic. He's a star. He's a rabbinical scholar. He's a university student. You name it. He's good looking. Maybe he's even into sports. He has one problem. He stammers. And the guy says, well, you know, it's worth it. I would do it because this is it. You know, someone who is good. Fine. So he says, but you're sure he's learned it? Yep. He's brilliant? Yes. Socially um, appropriate? You name it. Gets along with people? Yes. 
All right. Anyway, the guy shows up to meet the daughter, knocks on the door, and the rich guy opens the door, and the guy says, hello, my, my, my name is... The guy slams the door and says, get out of here, you idiot, right? And he calls the shot, and he says, you sent me an idiot. He says, what? He says, he comes to the door, he says, hello. What he should have done was going beforehand, and then you knock on the door, you got that out of the way, and then you're saying hello, and then you be a regular guy. Okay, so now thinking back of the person who told me the story, who I admire in many ways, what is the joke here? The joke here is that this poor guy is really an idiot because why wouldn't he have done that? Why wait to stay? And you often say that this, um, I have found myself, at least after hearing the story, thinking of the stammer saying, do that first, get it out of the way. In other words, as if this is something you're doing. For whatever, I don't think he's consorting with the devil or he made a deal with, with some demon. But the point is, this is obviously a joke in your head. Cut it out. This is serious business. You're coming to see a professor. You're coming to go for a diagnostic. You want to waste a quarter of your time with you not being able to say what you want to say. Makes no sense. Okay, so that, that I'm sorry. That bias is just there. So get stupidity out of the way. And, and, and getting down to business here. Yes, there are two things going. But I just want to say the main problem that stutterers and stammerers have is their deflated self-esteem and their perceived negative reactions that they have. I say perceived because it's not necessarily there. It's just that they, their hat's burning on them. They feel that people look down on them, don't value them. And if they're sophisticated uh, more sophisticated, that they think of them as having poor, um, shall we say, willpower or poor adapting power or not caring enough to take care of their problems. One second, Sam. You know, e- even the story that you said, the joke that you said, it really underscores the fact that despite what you said about the brain science or the imagery eventually being able to indicate the differences. We know that in many cases, stammerers and stutterers, what brings it out is the need to speak to someone publicly. In their rooms, they have at least recounted to me that they've been able, when they were alone, they were able within their own Daladamas with no one around, they could take the soliloquy and say it perfectly. And also context, for instance, public singing could work. That's another thing which I wanted to touch on. But let's just talk about the person who, in his room, he could be Olivier. But once he has to do it publicly, he finds himself overwhelmed. Like Biden said in the article, the sweat would start coming down his brow when he realized that he would be called upon. So even though before he went to school, he was able to read the passage and know it, Everything started to build up. So there is something, even though you said it's something that he can't control in a way because it's in his physiological part of his, of his system, what is it about the public that brings this out? So, so I, I think you're zeroing in the public. What you're really saying from the clinical sense is that it's engendered by an anxiety reaction. In other words, you have people who are not stammers and not stutterers. When they're called to speak about in public, they will have various kinds of reactions called anxiety reactions. They'll have sweats. Some of them will actually freeze. Some will have cognitive relapses. They will forget their lines, right? Some will physiologically have to go to the bathroom. Some will get palpitations, right? So in other words, what you're saying is that you have the anxiety reaction that often accosts people under certain circumstances. And speaking to the, in front of the public is a very common precipitator of these things. And then for these stammerers and stutterers, that's what goes. The anxiety causes that. So it's not surprising. It's not something about the public that causes stammering. It's something about the public that's a common trigger of a phobic reaction. I shouldn't say phobic, it's not that strong, an anxiety reaction. And then you take it from there. But it's coupled with what you said before of, of a difference in the actual, what's happening in their cortex. Well, but just think, think of it this way. Someone who has, let's say, a um, tendency towards palpitations or a tendency to a certain imbalance in hormones, anxiety reactions have a much better chance of resulting in that 
than regular circumstances. They were, in fact, public speakers who have uh, tachycardias, which is a sudden upbeat in the um, heart rate, know that they carry beta blockers. And I know performers who have beta blockers in their pocket and 20 minutes before performance, they take a beta blocker and they, they don't have it. That's not to say they don't have an anxiety reaction, but anxiety you can deal with just by your resolve from John Wayne or whatever, right? But palpitations, you can't quite control. I shouldn't say you can't. There are ways to do that too. If you're stupid enough and don't want to eat because you might want to put yourself in prison and get rid of that. But sure, the anxiety reaction comes and then it starts something to which at least there is no intuitive way to control, which is very calming for the ego. Like, I'm anxious. I don't want to appear in public. I know I have to, but if I can only stop myself by what? By getting scared? That's not enough. Get over it, right? But by getting palpitations, by stammering, I can't do anything about it. That's already in the psychosomatic physical realm. That's how the ego works. So that's great. If you have an escape like that, you basically escape the anxiety-producing situation. So in that case, what I basically purloined at the beginning as a silly, antique, psychodynamic approach, that is true, but it's mediated by anxiety. That's fine. But to say that the entire stammering is just a fiction created by the ego, nobody's believed in that in 200 years. I mean, let me say that. In 100 years, no decent person has believed in that. Let's go to the profane, and then the holy. You said before that you think it's somehow connected to a stage in sexuality. Can you talk about that for a minute? Okay. Essentially, what you're dealing with from a sexual symbolism point of view, and we can do the same for aggression, because sexuality and aggression are the two main cornerstones of human existence and human motivation. If you think just of the analogy, we're dealing here with someone who is producing and stopping himself from producing. The symbolism there, if you want to be straight Freudian derived theory um, sexual about it, is that this is dealing with sexual guilt. That's a traditional formula. In other words, you're trying to get involved. If you think of it, something like, let's say, people who have ejaculation problems or people who have climaxing problems. What's going on there is that very often when people are involved in what they call illicit relationships, they will not be able to climax, literally. And, and we can get into more sexual details. I don't think that's place over here. People can't get it t- together and despite themselves. So does that ever dovetail with a patient who has a stammering or stuttering issue? Okay, I've not seen that except in some French movies. <laughs> where basically they, they, they finally get together with the girl they want to and they say, uh, 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 they get all their lines and say it backwards instead of what's a nice girl like doing a place like this or what's a place like doing with a nice girl. It just, just Okay. Let me say, I want to say, just to put it out there, aggression, it works for aggression as well. Basically, you're trying to get something done and you can't get it done because your superego is saying, hey, Sam, Cut her out. You can't behave like this. You're not a guy. You're not a chaya. Look at the damage that you're doing. Okay. And let me just add, even if you're not a Michigan or Freudian, other basic drive that you might have, let's say the drive to accomplish or whatever it is that your ego stops you from doing for whatever kinds of personal reasons, the formula is the same. I'm just saying it's so nice to deal with a simple Freudian model because all we have is sex and aggression and the symbolism is so clear and, and by the way, the folklore is full. The classic example, somebody goes to a urologist, right? And the urologist says, so what's your problem, right? And the answer is, I pee the way you talk, okay? This is not just a silly joke. It basically talks about the symbolism because many people see productions, if you see like all kinds of, shall we say, semi-apocryphal formulas for watching your tongue. It's so similar to the sexual symbolism out there. It's almost comical. So some kind of primitive associations. So you're saying that if somebody would have visited that consulting room in Vienna and they had a stammering... Or or, or even in Cherry Hill, yeah. (laughs) Okay. 
the Rebbe, Reb Sigmund, would have probably gone into some issues of sexuality. Right. And- or if you would have gotten rid of the guy's, shall we say, frivolous guilt feelings about being sexual, about being aggressive, then this would not come to the fore. But I have to add, as a modern psychiatric uh, uh, professional, that that would only happen for people who already have some kind of physiological tendency towards that. And other people will come out another way. They'll come out in palpitations. They'll come out in sweats. They'll come out whatever. Sure. Well, again, probably because of the copious notes that Dr. Freud took, you'd expect there to have been some record of this issue, because it's obviously, you know, you know, the the film that won a number of accolades and awards a number of years ago, the King's Speech. Mm-hmm. You might sure. remember that film. Oh yes, was was a beautiful film. Yes, and it, it was. really went to the heart of this issue. You'd figure Freud was consulted about this, and is there a record of patients who had this issue and and how we dealt with it? So you're the Freudian, you you you're the historian in Freud. You tell me if he talks about it or not. It would be interesting to see. I don't think there is anything that Freud doesn't talk about, including this. But I always have a question of, uh, shall we say, um, truth and reporting. So I don't know. I'm a little bit dubious about my rep. Well, we know about the Anna Fleece and the whole... Yes, yes. I know about it to my my consternation. I know all the stories. But it doesn't matter. But you see, just because the guy's a liar, that doesn't affect the truth of what he's saying. Yeah. Look, both of us are aware of how important the public image is. Now let's go to the holy. This point of a stammer or stutter, I mentioned Ramos, I mentioned Biden. I could have started standing in the world or sitting in the world that I am with Moshe Rabbeinu himself. Yes. Right? From the Eben Ezra and probably even earlier, people have struggled with this point. How could we say that the greatest of our human beings, the one who was the Bechir Anushi, the way the Rambam describes him, someone who we know was the conduit to Torah. Without him, there is no Torah. There is no connection to God himself in a meaningful way if you're an Orthodox Jew. Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, declared about himself, and God agreed that he was, a, according to the simple shot, something of a stammerer and a stutterer, right? They, they actually interpret both different kvatpe and lashon. They say one is through stammering, one is through stuttering. Yeah. Yes, yes. And how could this be? How could that have happened? Uh, you could probably do a psychological or historical study of the reactions of the commentators to these psukim as to what their attitudes were at that time towards this, what we would call situation or machla or brain issue. And one of the beautiful things is, is that somehow when Moshe is the speaker of Torah, that is eliminated, right? It's almost as if this is your flaw, but look, when you become my agent, then this is what happens. Okay, I have, I have something very poignant about that to say, okay? And that is that it's not somehow despite, but because. And again, I, it's the Freudian, it's very easy to be Freudian because there are very few options in interpreting things, okay? Why do you have a speech to fluency? Because you have something to say that you're stopping yourself from saying. If we plug you into the God modality, right? Then you will then use that tremendous pressure you have to express things that until the, now you've been inhibiting and you'll use it the right way. So of course, if you want to have someone who has the potential for delivering the most powerful loaded message, go to someone who is constantly stopping himself from saying something because he obviously has something to say. You don't go to someone who only can say, yeah, nice weather, whatever. Somebody, You're going to someone who keeps saying, I'm not going to say this. There's something else I'm not going to say. You have a lot going on there. Let's channel that, and then we can have a blow across as a turn. That's, again, the, 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 the rationale, if I may be Mr. Professor over here, of taking a problem and saying, you're really trying to solve something. Let's channel that. So giving Moshe, again, the way you're, the secular way of describing this, is giving Moshe the soapbox of being the leader was the cure. And taking away the inhibitions where God says, don't worry. Let it roll out. Because you will be seen as my agent. Sure. You have a perfect coverage here. Ain't nobody going to blame you. 
So hit it. It's like an acting class. We tell people all that pain, all that suffering, bring it to the scene and get it out. Well, again, and you do see this, you know, parenthetically, when you read the biographies of various actors, that when they were in front of the cameras, they were lucid, they were cogent, they were brilliant. And yet in their private lives, they were stammering and stuttering and other things. So which sort of is a similar phenomenon of what you're talking about. Uh, I will end here today. And I'm going to, again, I know this is not a, a biblical scholarship or time to speak about the Mephorshim, but uh, Gersonides, the Ralbag, who always has something original, if you really take the time to study him, he is pretty sure. He develops it as a possibility. And then later, when he comes back to this point, he says it even as a certainty. It's clear to him that what actually caused Moshe to be a stutterer or a stammerer was not that he started out that way. Not that he had this brain deficiency, no. Because of his intense connection to God that began at the burning bush, it changed him. Even those three days or however much time it was, it altered him. He was sort of functioning differently. So he actually, because he had been a normal speaker up until this point, but now that he became intensely connected to the ecstatic experience of prophecy, of perceiving things in a different way, there was a disconnect when he had to speak to people. It's like the stammering and stuttering was actually a byproduct of his new life. And that was, he was speaking a different language. Right. He couldn't become a regular Joe like Biden and start talking. And talk about the weather. He can't talk about the weather. He has to That's talk right. about God and, and metaphysics. I, I just want to talk about another Midrash, which to me is very easy to interpret within my framework. Yeah, I knew you were going there. Yeah, so let me go there. That is a very Freudian Okay, I'm language. good at this. Okay, Moses sees Pharaoh, and he basically says, I want to be the next king. And they said, what the hell are you saying? He said, okay, I'm going to bite my tongue, literally. And he's been biting his tongue ever since because he sees this. He says, I'm entitled to be a leader. I'm a better leader than this guy. I don't have to pretend to be God because God's behind me. So that is the symbolism saying that he learned don't say what it is you want to say. And here God says, you are the leader. Don't bite your tongue anymore saying, yes, God spoke to me and I'm not schizophrenic and I don't belong in Bellevue. God spoke to me and sent me here. And this is basically what he saw as a kid. I can be the leader. You left out the part that I'm sure many of our listeners heard when they were small children. And maybe this has led to some of this prejudice of stammering and stuttering that Moshe, of course, was the perfect baby, and he sort of perceived that he would be the one that would upend Paro, so God sent the angel so Moshe could live. That angel's name was a superego. Yeah, to actually touch the hot coal and apply the hot coal to his mouth in order that he should be have this flaw. I'm sorry, I have to translate. That thing is called guilt. You know, he sicked them with a bunch of guilt saying, keep your tongue to yourself and don't say anything and feel horrible and get an anxiety attack every time you want to say something meaningful. Until God basically expunged them of that and say, forget that, go. I, I would just say to our listeners who may be struggling with this, that what they could take out of this, although, like you say, medication, understanding. Therapy. Speech therapy, it works beautifully. Okay, but isn't one of the things that can help them, as we know, putting that sports hero's picture on the wall can help, listening to the music, and also knowing that the greatest of our ilk, the greatest of the tribe, was someone who was saddled with this issue. Isn't that something that I think just on a simple level could allow a stammer and a stutterer not to feel like he has been shunted away and like he's there's no question that any repercussions on self-esteem are basically frivolous and arbitrary and anything we can use to give people a message that you are as worthy as someone who can just talk freely and shoot the breeze about anything including shtusim and that's true of any kind of attribute that makes us different than other people 
To say that may, that makes you less worthy is going back to second grade and the back of the room with kids have nothing better to do themselves. There's no reason to have negative implications about something that you do differently than other people. And I think another little balm or salve to this is that the era that you and I grew up in is starkly different than today. There's so much of interactions are done through email, through texting, through ways that it's not a Zoom communication where you have to talk with the other person. And that, I think, has also allowed stammers and stutterers for today not to feel like they can't function in society and be extremely effective. Whereas they don't have to be the great writer or physician. They could be a regular person. But since so much of our work has become digitalized, where they don't have to actually speak, I think that's also something that could take away the stigma. Indeed. I would say blunt, blunt the stigma. Yeah, it could blunt the stigma. And obviously, there's still going to be personal interaction, but at least the person can have that sense of self-worth. Or they can make a virtue of it. That's always the reaction formation is always the best way to deal with things. Say, I do this deliberately, and I don't want to speak. And somewhere in the Chafetz Chaim, it says that if you don't speak, you're better off than you speak. You can, you can dress it up anyway. I'm sorry for being cynical, sir. No, 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 no. I think, I, I think you're right. I think if you, speaking to a person who has difficulty articulating could be a lesson to all of us how precious each word is and how we should perhaps, as you say, be like the Chafetz Chaim and count our words and make sure that they actually have a difference and not just blurt out because we are gifted enough to blurt them to say whatever we want. That's a good lesson for me, I think, to end on this one. Take care, Sam. We'll catch you again, hopefully next month. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 